This week on the Backtable Podcast. This is the 30-year career decision. You know, you thought that getting into medical school was the biggest thing and getting into that residency program was even bigger and matching into that fellowship. This decision, the next one, finding out where you're going to be for the next 30 years, this is the big one. All the rest pale. And be sure to ask all the tough questions like, gee, can I see the monthly collections and the patient counts for every doctor in the practice for the last 36 months, right? I'd like to see that data. Do you have audited financial statements? Can I see your organizational chart? What are you thinking about succession planning? These are all the tougher questions that people are shy about asking, but from my perspective, the people who are asking that have really thought this through. everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. We have a great guest joining us today. We have Mr. Robert Glazer. He is the Executive Vice President of ENT and Allergy Associates, LLP, and focuses his attention on physician recruitment, mergers and acquisitions, and strategic planning. ENTA consists of over 300 providers practicing in over 55 locations in the New York and New Jersey metro region. Bob joined ENTA in December 1997 and has over 40 years of healthcare experience in finance and operations, information technology, managed care contracting, mergers and acquisitions, physician recruitment, and healthcare marketing. He has served on the Leadership Council as president of the Association of Otolaryngology Administrators, the AOA, and has participated on ad hoc committees in the American Academy of Otolaryngology and Head Neck Surgery. He's a board member of the Westchester County Association, a Fortune 500 business think tank. Uh, he's here today to talk to us about recruiting the next generation of ENTs. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you, ladies. I really appreciate you inviting me. Absolutely. It's it's a pleasure to have you. I think, you know, to kick us off, uh, maybe you can tell us more about yourself and about your background, how you got into this position, you know, what what's led you to where you are today. Sure. So um, in 1976, I graduated from a SUNY college here in New York, and my focus was business administration and came back home and recognized that I didn't want to be there too much and uh, needed to go find a job and make a living. Back in 1976, when you were looking for a job, uh, the New York Times had an employment section that was 50 pages long of little ads, and you used to go through those and send a resume in, and that's exactly what I did. And uh, lo and behold, I got an interview. My mom went out and purchased me a, a corduroy suit and sent me on the Long Island Railroad into the big city, Manhattan, where I grew up out in... Uh, Long Island in the middle of Nassau County. And I was lucky enough to get a job as a clerk at NYU Medical Center in the Grants and Contracts Division, helping physicians fill out their grant applications for medical research. And uh, that was the start of my career in healthcare. Uh, I wound up spending nine years at NYU Medical Center, getting uh, promotions over that period. I went to school at night, got my master's down at Washington Square, the main campus in public administration with a focus on healthcare. During the period of time, I, I 
moved out of the uh, School of Medicine Grants and Contracts Division into the Controllers Division. I wound up running the Department of Pediatrics and OBGYN at Bellevue. And also, this was a period of time where the use of computers was first coming into vogue. I was the first one to bring a portable computer into Bellevue. A, a portable computer at that time was a Panasonic 35-pound monster that I used to walk down First Avenue. It had a um, thermal printer in it, and that was the beginning of using things like Lotus and WordPerfect. But those are the things that helped me get my next job, because uh, after nine years at NYU Medical Center and successfully getting my master's through three years of, of night work, I got recruited to Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, another great institution, where initially I was asked to administratively run the fundraising division that was raising money for the Milstein Hospital and the School of Medicine up at Columbia. And I was reporting to both the uh, executive vice president of Presbyterian Hospital in the city of New York and the Columbia University Medical School. So I had to dance between two major bureaucracies. Uh, and I guess I did that successfully as uh, about two years into that stint, the executive vice president of Presbyterian Hospital asked me to become the treasurer of the Presbyterian Hospital in the city of New York. At the time, already a billion-dollar company. And that was really a tremendous career advancement for me. I was sitting at board committee and, and finance uh, meetings of the Presbyterian Hospital and Columbia University, got exposed to the board members who referred to themselves as the titans of industry, uh, whether it was the president of Chase Manhattan Bank or Merrill Lynch, chemical. And it really uh, enabled me to learn about capital finance in the healthcare environment. And I would tell you that was crucial as the next phase in my career uh, happened. Now, during this period of time, I had already moved into the city. After nine years of being in the city, I met my wife. We got married. We stayed in the city, had two kids uh, living in, in Manhattan on the Upper East Side. When my son was born, 32 years ago, a month after he was born, we moved up here to Northern Westchester. And after my stint at Columbia uh, and no longer wanting to commute into the city, things were changing at Columbia. I got a job with a small community hospital up here in Westchester that wanted me to help them build primary care practices. And that was my first foray into the private practice kind of realm. Uh, I was there for three years. I got recruited to a large multi-specialty group practice that was forming in Long Island uh, that was based on a kind of a sports medicine angle, but they were already a large multi-specialty group practice called ProHealth at the time. And I was commuting back and forth from Long Island to Westchester, which is not easy, even in, on a weekend. I wound up only staying there six months. I really did not like the leadership there. And I got a call from a recruiter about this failing otolaryngology startup that consisted of 12 separate practices that were trying to consolidate the business operation and they needed a CFO. And that was in November of 1997. And um, I joined that group. They wound up actually falling apart within six months, but three of the groups stayed together consisting of 12 physicians 
and decided to keep me on as they actually sold their business to a um, private equity firm back in 1998, at which time the private equity firm said to the doctors, we don't need him. And the doctor said, no, 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 actually, we think he is really the key and we're going to pay for him separately. And they kept me on and promoted me the next year to um, lead the operation. And uh, I've been here now 26 years. When I started, we were 12 physicians in six locations. And as you indicated, we're now uh, actually 243 physicians, about 120 audiologists in 55 locations. And we're seeing now about 120,000 patients a month. And uh, I'm proud to say we are the largest otolaryngology allergy practice in the United States. Wow. Congratulations. What a journey. It's been a great run. Yeah. I didn't realize that the, it had been sold to private equity in the very beginning. And I would tell you that within two years, um, the private equity guys really, it fell apart. And I, I actually was able to, and I, I mentioned the education I learned at Columbia being treasurer two and a half years after it was bought by private equity and that private equity experiment failed, um, I bought the practice back from the private equity guys and I needed to raise capital to do that. And my contacts that I had gained through my experience at Columbia Presbyterian enabled us to do that in a way that uh, had never been done before. So that was critical. So in 2001, we purchased the practice back and we've been on our own as a private practice owned by physicians since then. Wow, that's amazing. Because when you'd mentioned, okay, they kept me on, uh, but we still had the private actor. I'm like, do we need them? <laughs> and you did it. That's amazing. Congratulations. Well, I, I would tell you it's about building a team, right? And um, I recognized early on that the private equity guys, they were all smoke and mirrors. They didn't know anything about healthcare. You know, healthcare is local. What happens in New York is different. These guys were out of Atlanta. They had practices in Florida and Chicago. They were trying to be all over the place. But every one of those locations is different from the type of employee to the type of managed care contracts to the type of physicians to the type of patient. And um, I remain convinced healthcare is local. You know, it's not a McDonald's chain. You've got to be specific to the area. No, I was just going to say, building the team, part of it is recruiting. And today we're going to focus in on physician recruitment, which is a huge part of building this team. Um, I wanted to know, you know, when you're recruiting physicians, uh, what characteristics are you looking for? And how has that changed in the last couple of decades, if you will? Yeah. So just to give you a sense, I have probably interviewed in excess of 650 physicians since joining ENT and allergy. And I'm really focused on getting that next generation. And that next generation was different. You know, now I'm here 26 years, 25 years ago, that next generation is different than what today's next generation is. Certainly in the beginning, I would say 85% of the candidates were, were men. Today, it's 50-50. Today, there's much more of a focus on balancing career and family. I think back then, not as much, but some things stay consistent. And I would tell you, I really try to start to meet this next generation when they're in their PGY two and three years, 
to get to know really who they are and why New York? Why do you want to come to New York? New York is a tough place to live. It's it's more costly. The cost of living is higher. Uh, there's a very competitive atmosphere with all the academic medical centers here. Uh, so I really want to learn early on why you want to come to New York because, in fact, the practice is, is investing in growing a practice for our new young physicians. I like to say two things. I like to say, number one, we're not looking to hire the next employed physician. We're looking to hire the next partner. And number two, I like to tell when I'm sitting in on that first three-hour interview, I want you to think about your life 10 years from now and where you want to live and raise a family or be involved in your community, because that's where we should be looking to place you in one of our offices. You can't build a practice in one location and then three years later decide I'm going to move 50 miles away and expect that your patients will follow you. And certainly in private practice up until now, it's about growing a, a following and a patient population and a reputation. And that means staying in one area and knowing that you know, when you're first coming out of residency or fellowship, you're 32, 33 years old, are you going to be happy in that location when you're 43, when you're 53, when you're 63, right? You may change in terms of what you are doing, you know, what you're willing to do as a surgeon in your 30s, changes in your 40s, changes in your 50s, as you mature in the practice, uh, matures and technology matures, but being part of the community is critical. And so that's what I'm looking for is who really wants to be part of our community. Do you find that as you are growing and opening new practices, is it, I don't want to say easier, but are you mostly hiring people who are fresh out of, of residency and kind of starting fresh? And is that easier than, you know, bringing in someone who's been in private practice and is set in their ways or, you, you, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. No, you're all difficult. Doesn't matter <laughs> if you're residents, fellows, or faculty. Uh, listen, we all want to have it all, right? And we're all type A individuals and we all want this balance, right? So sure, uh, you know, I, I spend most of the summer from June through September traveling up and down the East Coast. Uh, I do dinner meetings in Washington, D.C., in Philadelphia, two in New York, one in Albany, one in Boston, Burlington, Central Connecticut, what I would call the Mid-Atlantic Coast for our residents and fellows that we're recruiting. That's the, the sweet spot, so to speak. Uh, I do have the email address of every single PGY 1 through 5 in all of the academic institutions from Washington, D.C. to Boston. You know, if you're going to do this, you need to start connecting with folks early on. And what I'm trying to do is, again, connect with them. After that first year of slavery, PGY1, they have a little bit more time. I can invite them to a really nice dinner, uh, which we try to get anywhere from 15 to 20 residents or fellows out to a dinner, where each year I'm actually changing the topic. Maybe it's managed care contracting, maybe it's marketing, maybe it's EHR, uh, maybe I'm bringing some physicians with me, maybe they're older, maybe they're new, maybe they're faculty, but I'm trying to mix it up 
so that they get to know us at a more personal level. That's how we're we're looking to find who are the ones who really want to come to New York and start connecting with them. On the other side, you know, I do speak at state otolaryngology societies, and I'm often a speaker at the academy meeting. I'm asked to give talks around the country. And through that, you know, you connect with the older, uh, more mature otolaryngologists who uh, happen to, you know, at some point give me a call and say, you know what, I'd like to learn more about joining ENT. I'm not a resident or fellow, but I'm not thrilled for some reason where I'm at. And we've been able to recruit many from uh, the academic side who I would say the, the biggest message I hear from that group is they're tired of their bureaucracy uh, and they can't seem to move quick enough. They want to be more nimble. They want more freedom to, you know, make their schedules and have a, a real team of folks behind the scenes making sure that the mundane stuff, billing, collection, human resources is done in a way that they can practice top-level clinical care. And we've been successful recruiting from, you know, faculty, senior faculty at Mount Sinai, at Einstein, at Columbia, uh, certainly, you know, because of the uh, number of programs in the New York area, that tends to be easier. The geography here works, but I've recruited from the University of Pennsylvania, from um, Yale. And again, I think part of that is I'm out there myself networking in the otolaryngology space and the allergy space and the audiology space to shout out about what's great about working and being part of the family at ENT and Allergy Associates. So, you know, in terms of mid-career or people that are, you know, even further out, being tired of the bureaucracy, wanting autonomy, that that resonates. I, I totally can relate to that. In terms of the new grads, what do they need? What are what are some of the new, you know, newly recently graduated or just coming out um, looking for when you talk to them? Yeah, I think, um, so number one, I would say we're certainly seeing more fellowship trained otolaryngologists. I actually think there are too many. And, um, you know, there's just not enough head and neck cases out there for all these people coming out. You've got a, a generation or two of already trained fellowship trained specialists and with great reputations. So I think there's a, um, a little bit of uh, unrealistic expectations from the new fellowship trained grads that are coming out that they can uh, look for a practice and they're going to be 90%, you know, neurotology, 90% rhinology, 90% laryngology. It's unrealistic. I mean, there are, particularly in a, a larger city, there are already well-established practitioners with reputations. You know, the good news is, again, we have a large uh, number of otolaryngologists and we do refer within the practice, but the truth of the matter is there's just too many. So number one, I think a little bit of unrealistic expectations. I think there's a little bit of pampering that has gone on over the years uh, in, in an academic institution. They certainly don't educate the fellows and the residents about the realities of billing and collection and documentation, but also the realities of networking and promoting yourself in a community, particularly in private practice where, you know, you're not part of an academic faculty. You have to go out there and all of a sudden become a little bit of a, a salesperson. And 
physicians are not generally salespeople and, and they need to, you know, come out of their shells a little bit. Now we have a great marketing team and a business development team that helps them do that. I'm actually looking for the attributes. I know you're all trained top notch, but do you have a personality? Uh, you know, do you have a little bit of a flair? Are you willing to go out there and do some talks? I have a team of people who help you develop YouTube promotions for yourselves. Uh, what's a, what's your angle? You know, we're blessed enough to, in my mind, have some of the the best at this. Somebody like Sujana Chandra Shaker, who is, uh, you know, a promoter of both the subspecialty and herself, John Eve. You know, certainly those folks have dynamic personalities. It doesn't happen overnight. Look at you two starting up this thing. This is unbelievable what you're doing. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but you're right. The, I, I, I think the networking is huge. Um, and that's, you know, in terms of why I do the podcast. I mean, this to me is sitting in a, at a boardroom with somebody who's been at the table, right? Like this is, you know, somebody being able to learn and share the experience. So for me, the the networking and how that relates to podcasting or just building relationships, whether it's getting patients or as a consultant to finding like-minded people in your profession. I mean, it's nice to have good relationships in our hospitals and our community. And, and that is something that sometimes building that culture in our training can be difficult only because when you're the primary pager holder that first few years or you know, you're running around, it's hard to, you know, as the resident, sometimes it's hard for us to be like, thank you for that consult. I will, you know what I mean? It, and really it is just getting to know who's around me, who am I working with? Who are the nurses at the nurse's station? Who's the pack you charge? Like who's the OR? Who's my, you know, internist that I need to help me manage the blood pressure stuff? So it is building relationships. And then that self-promotion, especially if you're if you're not comfortable going out and saying, this is what, you know, who I am and I'm, you know, here's my number, whatever you have, you know, when you go talk to practices, um, just building your relationships, I think is another way that includes that promotion as well, I think. I, I would tell you that it also went, particularly on the private practice side, it's not only building relationships in the healthcare setting, it's building relationships outside the healthcare setting. Most of our docs these days, 60% plus of their patients, new patients, are patient-to-patient referrals or community referrals, right? So, you know, I often tell young docs, okay, now once you figure out us and our systems, now you got to go become active in your communities, join the Chamber of Commerce, uh, become involved in your churches and synagogues, uh, be part of the Board of Education, join the Chamber of Commerce. How about the rotary? You know, all these things. I know it sounds kind of kooky, but people want to learn about you and you, you'd be surprised how quickly you gain a patient population that would not have come to you because you're not seen as this physician on a, on a pedestal. You're just a normal person trying to get along in the community, you know, raising your family and, and being part of it. My wife is... Uh, I met her. She was working at on Wall Street at the time I met her, um, and she's become very politically involved uh, up here in Westchester. I I can't tell you the number of political events and the doors that open for me to meet with our senators and assemblymen down in D.C., up in Albany, locally. Um, uh, she's involved with an organization called Eleanor's Legacy, which is their their uh, goal is to get women elected to office. I can't tell you, and, and you know, uh, women are the primary 
healthcare advocates for their families. Connecting with all these folks, I do it. I'm a business guy, but I encourage my physicians, they got to do that too. I mean, practice building never stops, never stops. So I may be the front man, but I need the physicians to come along for the ride. Yeah, for sure. That's great advice. And I want to also back up because you talked earlier about um, there being uh, more desire for that work-life balance, work-life integration, whatever you want to call it these days. And when you and I had talked previously, you mentioned that the family leave policy that you guys have been able to come up with. And I would love for you to expand on that more because I think particularly in the private practice sector, the thought of, you know, someone being out for maternity leave or paternity leave and not generating revenue for three months and being able to be supported by a salary during that time, you know, how do you get to that point where you're financially able to do that for your providers? And what did that look like for you guys? Yeah. So I could tell you for years, we never had a family leave policy. And, um, I told you, I have two kids. My daughter is 35. My son is 32. My daughter is actually uh, a medical malpractice defense attorney. She works for the good side. And uh, she's on a partnership track. She she actually made partner at a rather well-known New York City-based med mal firm. And, you know, she's on this partnership track. And about five years ago, uh, she came to me and um, she's married and thinking about a family. And she said, Dad, can you believe that they don't have a family leave policy at this law firm in this day and age? What is your family leave policy? At which point I had to say to my daughter, we don't have one, but I'm going to have one next week. But I wanted the grandchild, right? And, and I know it's tough for women in particular, but I would also tell you that for the generation of guys coming out of residency programs who have significant others, they want to spend more time with their kids, uh, particularly in those early years. And, and by the way, it's helping your your spouse as they're trying to wrap hands around being a new mommy. It's not easy, right? Um, so we're big enough, right? And I would tell you, I don't know another private practice in the country with a family leave policy that basically says, if you go out on, on maternity or paternity leave, we're going to pay you for, I think it's three months base salary and- we will extend. Uh, we have a partnership track here. So if the partnership track is seven years, and that's what our partnership track is, and you're spending three or four months out on maternity leave, the partnership track becomes seven years, three months, or seven years, four months, because I've got to keep it fair. Now, by the way, for the guy who goes out on paternity leave, same thing. If you were to go out on some sort of a medical leave, during the course of your partnership track, you would all be treated the same way. Uh, you know, it's got to be seen that way. It took a while, not too much for me to convince the partnership that they had to do it. But here was my pitch. You know, 25 years ago, as I told you, 85% of the candidates were men. Today, it's 50%. And if you're not going to be changing up the way you're thinking about maternity and paternity leave, we're going to lose 50% of potential candidates who have gone through these really tough programs to be what you are. And it's tough enough to recruit now. Now you're going to tell me 50% of the eligible pool is not 
you know, really going to look at us. On a yearly basis, there's 300 ENT residents approximately that come out of a training program. And I would tell you, as I look at the landscape, 30 or 40% now are going into either academic medicine or health, some healthcare system. If I divided the country up and said there's 300 and 100 of them are going to go into academics, it really leaves 100 for everybody east of the Mississippi and 100 for everybody west of the Mississippi. I'm east of the Mississippi. I need 15 new otolaryngologists today. That means I need to find 15 out of the 100, right? If I'm going to eliminate 50% women, right? Now I'm down to 50. How realistic is for me to get even, you know, 10% if we don't adapt to the change? So uh, the numbers are real and people need to adapt to a changing environment. So Bob, is it okay for somebody that you're recruiting to ask about family leave or maternity leave? Do people, and then off of that question, what are some of the questions that will kind of keep coming up for the new generation? Yeah, that's a good question. So number one, it's absolutely okay. And in fact, if you don't ask, I'm surprised that you don't ask. And, and if you don't ask, I'm going to tell you. And then I'm going to tell you to go speak to 10 of my other female physicians, whether they're associates and partners, and tell them how great it is that we did this. That's a good thing when you speak to your, your colleagues. You know, I'm not the doc. You guys are, and you need to speak to your fellow physicians. And in particular, women physicians need to speak to women physicians, right, about this. And I think in particular, women physicians, I have found, have been a little bit shy about asking about financial benchmarks and so forth. I was recently asked to give a talk at, we, we do a, a women in otolaryngology dinner in New York. I invite all the women otolaryngologists. And I was there, I was the speaker talking about financial planning and the attributes of being in a private practice versus an academic practice where there are a lot more tax benefits and deferred savings plans. And, and listen, we're all, once you get through your residency program, you start a family, then you begin to worry about how am I going to pay for my kid's education? How am I going to fund my retirement? I'm already 10 years behind the eight ball. And I find that women in particular don't ask enough really tougher financial questions, but not that the guys ask that they, they know much more. But I got through this talk this past uh, year and right away, a bunch of hands went up in the audience and Bob, why don't they teach this stuff to women in medical school? I said, they don't teach it to men either. You got to ask about it and learn about it. So, and you, this is the 30-year career decision. You know, you thought that getting into medical school was the biggest thing and getting into that residency program was even bigger and matching into that fellowship. This decision, the next one, finding out where you're going to be for the next 30 years, this is the big one. All the rest pale. And be sure to ask all the tough questions like, gee, can I see the monthly collections and the patient counts for every doctor in the practice for the last 36 months, right? I'd like to see that data. Do you have audited financial statements? Can I see your organizational chart? What are you thinking about succession planning? These are all the tougher questions that people are shy about asking, but 
from my perspective, the people who are asking that have really thought this through. So no, I, I don't mind the questions about uh, maternity leave and finance and organization. I mind the question when, you know, the, the second question that's asked is, how much ER call do I have to take? That's the question that, to me, is a red flag. You're asking me that this early in the discussion? How much vacation can I have after six months? Listen, I, uh, my parents were high school graduates, and they put myself and my two siblings through college. I worked hard to get to where I am. We all have to work hard to get to where we are. And, you know, getting out of, and I get it, you're starting 10 years late, you're 32 or 33, the work is just beginning again to some extent, building your own private practices. So those are the things I think about. Yeah. I think a lot of times, you know, as a resident, you just don't know what you don't know. You know this life of residency, um, which is so different than life after residency. And so a lot of times you just don't know what you should be asking. That's why I love doing these dinners that I do each summer because I get to interact with residents when they're PGY2s and 3s and start planting the seed about how to build a practice, but also the financial implications and trying to build a family. You know, you got to build your your retirement plans starting earlier, right? It's uh, It's not what you make, it's what you keep, right? And that's the part where private practice has significant tax advantages that people don't know about in the academic setting. And, and you don't, you're not taught about that. And I think it, it's critical because we all know how expensive it, it is to raise a family and, and live in a community and take advantage. After all, you all have devoted your lives to this stuff. There's got to be a return on that investment both personally and culturally and financially. Yeah. They don't let you think about that in medical school. <laughs> they don't. In terms of financial literacy, I, I like that you mentioned that you give talks. How can, you know, like starting an internship or maybe starting at when you can breathe a little bit more and like as a PGY4, I, you know, that could even potentially be late. I mean, I, I was very late to the game when it came to learning about finances. What kind of resources do you recommend or you know, what's a good habit? Like, you know, once a month, read something or what do you recommend? Well, I don't know. You know, I'm not in your shoes, so I don't know how demanding residency training is. I've heard all the stories, you know, 10,000 hours in the operating room, being on call forever, and then some. So I would say that more young people should get involved with the American Academy of Otolaryngology's programs for students and residents. I think finding a mentor like a Sujana, somebody like her in the area that you ultimately want to live in. And I, again, you know, this is, I know it's tough to think about that when you're in the midst of these training programs, but what I would say this, uh, what I've learned is 80% of the time people wind up near their families, right? So this week I interviewed people out in LA, in Seattle, flew a kid in from Kansas City, why New York? And nine times out of 10, they have some family here, right? So find that mentor in the city that you think you're going to wind up in. And I think that's a good thing. And connect with them. Connect with them on a regular basis. 
Uh, and when, if you're not in New York City and you're coming in for a family, you know, holiday or something, try to go out to dinner. Can I spend uh, two hours in your clinic with you? I can tell you, physicians, by your training, you all want to give back and, and teach the next generation. Hopefully you don't terrorize the next generation because there's a little bit of that that goes on. But, um, you know, I, I think find that mentor. When you're doing your recruitment and, you know, graduating residents and fellows are looking at different options. You mentioned, you know, hospital employed or academic practice or, you know, solo practice or a small group practice. What is your spiel when you're selling, you know, your group and why people should join you guys over some of these others? I mean, you've talked a little bit about the family leave and the efficiencies that you have being a big group, but what's your kind of typical spiel? Um, so number one, we're contacted all the time. The first thing I do is I FedEx overnight, what's called a practice overview binder, which is about um, a physical half inch, three quarter inch binder that really tells you all about ENT and allergy. How are we structured? What What's the board of trustees? Who's on the board of trustees? Where are our locations? Here are maps of where we are. Who are all our doctors? Who are all the administrators within the practice and what are their jobs and who do they report to? I include an audited financial statement in that binder, right? One of the things I like to say about ENT, and I would tell you that uh, successful practices need to be transparent about, you know, what's going on in this practice. So sending you audited financial statements where you can look back and look at the balance sheet. You may not know what a balance sheet is, but you should figure that out and look at the trends, I think is really important. So that's one thing. Uh, you know, once a candidate sees that, they're intrigued. The next thing I would do is uh, I'd probably do a Zoom for about 15 minutes to kind of understand why New York, because we spend a lot of time recruiting and, and a lot of money recruiting, and I don't want to waste people's time. Once we get through that, uh, the next step is we're flying somebody into New York if they're not local, and they're coming to my office, which is the back office operation, and they're spending about three hours with me and different members of our administrative team walking them through the back office operation, looking at transparent data, looking at information about all of the other ENTs and allergists in the practice. What were they doing? How did they build their practice with data? You're all scientists, right? So if I can show comparative data of, let's say, all the neurotologists, if it's a neurotologist I'm collecting in, and the locations, their payer mixes, their patient counts, new patients, established patients. We're going through an in-depth overview of all that stuff and sharing with them the fact that we have dedicated marketing teams that help you build your practice and promote you in the communities in different zip codes where I have people out visiting urgent care centers and, and nursing homes. And when the local radio or TV station calls and they need somebody for a hot medical issue, ensuring that you're ready to talk about that. But giving them that overview and then sharing with them the incomes of people, first year out, second year out, third year out, the difference of what happens um, when you kick into the junior partner status and, and get the tax advantages that you can gain. And then what happens when you become a partner and how does that change your income? 
sharing all that data down to the lowest level for every single physician in the group. Transparency. Okay, if we get through that one and they, they're typically still interested, then it's, well, which of these 55 locations is the one for you, right? And listen, we have locations in Manhattan. We have locations in the five boroughs, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island. By the way, Staten Island's a gold mine. I have locations out in Southampton, 100 miles from Manhattan. Not every location is for everybody. And again, I need the residents and the fellows to think 10 years out, where do you want to be? You might be 32 and you think Manhattan's great. Um, there's a lot of competition in Manhattan. But 10 years from now, when you're trying to raise a family, um, maybe Manhattan's not the right spot. You know, depending on one's personal finances, maybe Manhattan is the right spot. Maybe you got a trust fund or somebody's paying for your kid's education. You know, it's expensive to be in Manhattan. Uh, on the other hand, I can tell you that there's so many people who love to come to the big city. It's a draw. Being in the big cities are a draw. And, and my colleagues around the country that are in rural communities are finding it really tough to recruit ENTs. Now, certainly because we're one tax ID practice where we have a lot of efficiencies that you get out of a larger organization, we're all on the same EHR, we're all on the same billing system, I can move my staff around. When I sit down and, and negotiate with Blue Cross, I'm in a better position than the two-man practice that's on its own. So we do get better rates. I have a better billing department. That's just the nature of what we built here. I have more talented billing and collection staff. They've won awards nationally. So where other groups may be leaving money on the table because they don't know how to bill and collect correctly, we're not. So combining higher rates, better billing and collections divisions, and a more efficient operation, that all flows through to the bottom line and results in, in better incomes, right? And, and now you got to balance how much time do you want to put into this? And we do. I, I think the fact is our, our physicians' incomes enable you to balance your life better. You don't have to be crazy and see six, seven patients an hour. I, in fact, I would tell you our typical doc is seeing about three and a half patients an hour. And the typical doc is maybe in the clinic 29 hours a week and a half a day in the OR. And then you get to be with your family, right? And, and by the way, not worry about payroll and still have some great benefits, both tax benefits and retirement benefits and childcare issues. Listen, when my kids were growing up, I was at every soccer game, right? Didn't mean that after the soccer game, I didn't go back to the office for a couple hours, but I wanted to be there for them. And, and I'm sure you guys want the same as you grow your families or participate in your local communities. I love that you, that you made the point of transparency because I think that that is key in groups feeling happy and feeling like things are fair. And, you know, when you have that transparency and you're saying, like, hey, look, like, this is the way it is. This is the track. Everyone is, has the same compensation structure and it's starting from the same point and it's building towards the same goal. I think that that just creates um, some trust in that system, too, you know, and I think that's probably why you guys have been so successful. It's a big deal. And I would tell you, when I first came here, they didn't have the 
reporting capabilities that we have today. I've really I've hired our own programmers. We've integrated the billing system and the EHR system that as a result, we've got a physician dashboard that enables a physician on any given day to log into their own dashboard that has 25 statistical reports about themselves that they could compare themselves to five other physicians in the group at what point in time, looking at their coding, looking at their surgeries, really drilling into this. And the data is up to date through yesterday, right? And again, you could look at your data and then you could call one of my business development team members and say, hey, can I talk about this data? I don't understand this. And why am I different than somebody else? What's going on? Help me figure this out, right? Because I'm trying to see patients, but I know there's something here that I'm not picking up on. And, you know, being a, an observer from the outside and certainly my business development team is looking at all of our doctors. We kind of know best practices here, right? It's helpful to get a third-party opinion. Or to even call up another physician in the group and say, hey, what's going on here? Help me. Bob, when you're recruiting, how do you know how to match? So, you know, you're going to have the needs of the group. You're going to have the partners. or Maybe it's just you're looking at the location of where you might this person might be placed. But how do you sort of make it all fit, right? Because a new recruit's got to fit in with not just the clinical need, but maybe the organization or the culture of the place or, you know, be able to work with everybody. Yeah, there's a lot of drama there, right? I could love you guys, but at the end of the day, it's that local office and the other physicians in there. And each of them are, have their own agendas. Each of them are at different points in their lives. There's, you know, men, women, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, people who are building practices, people who are kind of taking their foot off the gas. Yeah, I told you that I bring the candidates in for that first meeting with me for three hours, but there are two or three subsequent sessions in the office with the docs during clinic hours, certainly over a dinner. I mean, you want to do, you want to meet these folks when you're not seeing patients as well. It's harder to recruit in some physician offices than others. And I've been on a great run. Nobody can argue with our success, right? And I think part of it is I have built up a reputation with our physicians. I'm a straight shooter and I tell it like it is and, and talk about the business environment, the healthcare environment. Tell the story of why I think this candidate is the right candidate for your office. Over the years, I've primarily been successful, but there are times where I'm not. And, you know, when I'm not, I'm disappointed because I put a lot of effort into it. Maybe I look for another location, but I also have to turn the page and say, okay, that one didn't work. Maybe it's something I didn't pick up on. Maybe I didn't tell the story the way I should have. Maybe I need to help educate the physicians in those offices about what's going on in their local environment. Again, what physicians do in their 30s changes in their 40s, changes in their 50s. Today, there's so much more office-based stuff going on, but you still need surgeons, right? And so the older guys and gals are not running to the OR as much, but if you want to remain a ENT practice, you need people doing surgery. And for the young folks who look out there and say, well, I think I should just you know, move into office-based, well, you need to build a reputation 
And one of the best ways to do that is remain in the OR, do those cases, be nice to the OR nurses, bring chocolates, bring donuts. In New York, bring babkas, you know, have a smile, crack a joke, even at three o'clock in the morning. It's okay. Build your reputation. You build a practice. That's the ones that are successful. So it's challenging. Uh, I can tell you right now, I'm, as I said, I'm looking for 15 people right now. We have mandatory retirement at age 72 here. And I would tell you in the New York area, and I know this is around the country, COVID has really caused a lot more people who were hanging on to retire early. So we have more volume than we've ever had. We're running 15% higher than we budgeted in 2023. And and that was coming off the best year ever, 2022. Uh, I don't have enough physicians. And I can tell you, I don't have enough physicians that I'm interviewing to backfill for this. So our marketing message in New York is call us today, see us today, right? We answer 45,000 calls a week, of which 52% are somebody wanting a same day or next day appointment. And the truth of the matter is we can't deliver on the promise right now. It's call us today, maybe see us tomorrow. Call us today, see us today is not working anymore. I need more physicians and uh, finding the right ones for the right location is challenging. So you brought up a lot of interesting points there, including COVID, increase in volume, people leaving earlier than expected, you know, lots of changes in the healthcare system. The question I have is, do you have any advice for physicians that are in a practice where, you know, there's a lot of unexpected change, whether it's in the healthcare system or uh, leadership, for example, or, you know, feeling burnt out for whatever reason uh, that's very prevalent uh, right now uh, has been and it's only continuing. Any advice, whether it's recruiting or just overall in terms of how to handle that, how to manage all of that? So number one, and it's not just for physicians, we're all burnt out. It's not a hundred mile dash. It's the marathon, right? So yeah, things are changing. You guys and gals, you know, you're very talented and you know what you're doing. I think it's important you hire people and be part of an organization that have talented administrative staff behind you and and you encourage them, mentor them, give them the opportunities to be the best at their areas so that you can remain the best clinically, right? And focus your attentions on the clinical side. But it is not a hundred yard dash. Um, I think that you've got to take time off, you know, and, and refresh and carve out time in your schedules and try to stay focused on sticking to your daily schedules uh, trying to stay tight in those schedules, trying not to do too much in too short a period of time because something will go wrong and, and that's the worst thing that can happen for you guys. I think that um, finding a solid organization is really important with the right administrative team behind you uh, so that you can focus on what you want to do. Now, that doesn't mean, and at ENT Analogy, every physician in the group can become part of one of our boards or subcommittees, whether it's the finance committee or the retirement committee, the marketing committee, the EHR committee. We want physicians involved 
you got to find the time to do that. Most of those meetings are, you know, some sort of a Zoom at night these days. Uh, you can't do it all. And maybe, you know, within your clinic setting, you know, several others are involved and you can share your um, roles in terms of remaining active in the areas that you like to do. You know, you two ladies seem to have a real gift for, you know, marketing and promoting. It may not be uh, that you're really interested in learning how the retirement plan is investing their money in and which funds are they in, right? Uh, you got to pick the area that you like to be involved in, but your focus has to remain on the clinical side of medicine. Good advice. Well said. You know, I've grown up in New York my whole life, and I would tell you that the key for myself and my wife as we've raised our family is three winter vacations, right? So early December, five days, go down south, get some sun, refresh, read some books, go out to dinner. End of January, another five-day vacation, somewhere warm. End of March, my birthday, my wife's birthday as well. Let's go away for a couple of days on our own, right? You need time to refresh with your significant others, your family, and then things generally slow down in the summer. Take some time to refresh, recalibrate. It's not a hundred yard dash. It's a marathon. Very well said. It's a, a great way to to round it out as well. I think we could probably talk to you for another hour, but we have to, to wrap it up. But Thank you so much for giving us your time today. So much wisdom, so much experience, and kudos to you for building such uh, an amazing, big practice out there, still growing. And uh, shout out to Sujana Chandrasekhar and, and Bradley Block, both former guests of ours who are in the ENT and Allergy Associates. And both have podcasts as well. Sujana with She's on Call and Brad with um, Physician's Guide to Doctoring. And both of them came from us from very different angles. Sujana, who was in the academic track and out on her own and tried her own private practice. And, and Brad, who I, I recruited right out of, I think it was, uh, it was down in D.C. So it was Georgetown or George Washington. Uh, so number one, I'm going to be doing all these dinners uh, to your audience. Anybody who wants to come to a dinner, I'd love to host you at a dinner. I'll also be at the Academy this year in Nashville. I've been asked again to give a talk. Last year, I titled the talk, If I Knew Then What I Know Now. And I actually got 12 physicians, ENTs from around the country to attend my lecture and stand up and answer that question. And they were from academics. They were from the South. They were fellowship trained. And it was a fantastic lecture. And they've asked me to do that one again. So I'll be in Nashville uh, so if you want to come and hear a, a lot of perspective and meet a lot of great clinicians from around the country, it's a great way to do that. I love the Academy meeting. You know, and Nashville is a great place, you know. I like to say Nashville is just less vomit than New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. And, and if people want to reach out to you, how do you recommend people get in touch with you or contact you? Are you on social media at all or email? Yeah, email is best, rglazer at entandallergy.com. Uh, here's the thing. I am retiring. End of this year, December 31, I have actually already transitioned the CEO role to my successor. 
a guy named Dan Blum, who started about two months ago. And uh, I actually know Dan for close to 30 years. He's the right guy for the right time. I will be uh, Bob 3.0 beginning January 1. Uh, I'm looking to do some, A, even more time with my family. I have a grandson now. But I'll, um, I've already been asked to be on some for-profit boards and do some strategic planning and, and work like that. So my Gmail address, rglazer0354 at gmail.com. That's awesome. I'm, I'm super excited for uh, Bob 3.0. Congratulations. That's so exciting. <laughs> I'm not done, but I've taken my foot off the gas. Yeah, no, it's a journey. It's a, it's a process. So that's great. All right. Very good. Thank you. Thank you so much. My pleasure, ladies. Have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Ogrodzinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.